In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. Betches Media presents... He's in the building! Afternoon Tea with host Sammy Sage. Is that what you're saying? Please proceed, Governor. Presented by the Betches Sub Podcast. You better hope there's a lot of girls listening to this with the volume turned down. Your weekly dose of political therapy. Cardi, that's what I've been doing my whole life. And now, with this week's guest... Well, there were three of us in this marriage, so it was a bit crowded. Your host, Sammy Sage. Welcome to today's episode of Afternoon Tea, your companion to the morning announcements and weekly political therapy session brought to you by The Betches Sup. Today's guest is Alicia Menendez, journalist, author, podcast host, and MSNBC anchor. Alicia and I chatted about her upcoming MSNBC special, American Voices, Latinos Inside the White House, which airs on Sunday, as well as her career in media and how women fall into the likability trap of what society expects from us. With that, let's get the tea from Alicia. Hi, Alicia. Welcome. Hi. Is that your pup behind you? It is. This is Larry David. He is sleeping. Yeah. He's so comfortable. I want to be Larry David. He is like the most relaxed dog. Like he has zero anxiety. Could you imagine? What is that? Like, no, I know. I, can't. I know. I mean, we have another dog, Bruce Bader Ginsburg, who has tons of anxiety. So it's like, so I am your Bruce Bader Ginsburg. I am my own Bruce Bader Ginsburg. <laughs> Larry and my husband are um, kindred spirits. But Alicia, we have so much to talk about. You have the most incredible, versatile career. And Thank you. yeah, so before we get, you know, into, into the real questions, do you want to tell us, I guess, about your journey? Why did you set out to become a journalist? And how did that happen? Yeah, let me think about how I can do that without taking up the entirety of your of your podcast. I grew up in a place called Union City, New Jersey. It's close to where I live now. It is where all the Cubans who didn't go to Miami came to, um, including my paternal grandparents. And um, I grew up with a father who is an elected official, a public servant. My mom's a public educator. And so that was sort of the only life I knew and the only path I saw for myself. And so I very much imagined that I would go to college, go to law school and run for office. And fresh out of college, I worked on a few campaigns. And as someone who had never considered any other path and who wanted to have impact and who wanted to be of service, I all of a sudden realized that these campaigns were trying to communicate with voters and that what often stood between them and that was the media. And that in as much as campaigns thought that they were setting the conversation or the agenda, the media was often doing that. And that became of great interest to me and great curiosity. So after that campaign, I went on Craigslist and I got myself a job um, booking guests on a political talk show in Westchester. And I learned everything I knew there about you know, basic television production. And I would ask questions like, what is MOS? What's an SOT? Like all of these things that I didn't know I filled in my gaps there. And I learned what makes a great guest. And part of learning what made a great guest 
was then setting that foundation from my becoming a great guest myself. And so I would later work in nonprofit work at Rock the Vote, um, at Democracia USA, doing Latino voter engagement, voter registration. And I got booked there a ton as a guest on MSNBC, like back in the day, I would be a guest on MSNBC. And, um, and then I finally made the jump um, to doing media full time when the Huffington Post launched their streaming network, HuffPost Live. 10 years ago, which is so weird. And um, it was this thing that was ahead of its time. It was streaming um, before people were all buzzing about streaming. And I learned so much there. Like I, I just, we did eight hours of coverage and it meant you do three major interviews a day and they had us all be producers and hosts, which now is the ethos of a lot of places. But 10 years ago, it wasn't. It's like, you're going to write your own scripts you're going to write your own questions. Like you're not here to just read. And that became then who I was as a producer, right? Like I, um, I got really accustomed to, to being a part of the production process. And so that is a very long answer to your question. No, I have so many offshoots to that. Well, first is that like, you know, I think your career probably like prepared you more for what the way media works now, where like as a producer or an interviewer, you have to do all the jobs pretty much. And you have to kind of be able, you're a better asset if you're able to do more of the jobs. So of the editor, of the, of the segment producer, of the actual interviewer and of like the tech, if you can figure out that technology too, obviously. Um, So I have one sort of shallow question and one deeper question, which would you like to answer first? I won't judge you if you pick the shallow one. No, I'll start with it. Judge me all you want. I'm going to start with the shallow one. Yeah. Yeah. What makes a good guest and how do you become a better guest? That's That's not shallow at all. That's a fantastic question. Um, Oh, well, the other one's more, the other one's less shallow. (laughs) Okay. I think, um, I think. Yeah. I, I think what makes... First of all, I think they're all different types of guests, right? There are guests who are experts. There are guests that are um, experts based on on knowledge base and they're like things they have studied, work they do, and then there are experts based on lived experience. And there are also people who are doing cool things in the world that you want to know about and they too can be a guest. I think, and I'm sure you run into this, is like the, the strangest thing as an interviewer is that sometimes you will prep so hard for an interview, you will read everything the person has written, you will listen to every podcast they've ever been on, and then they show up and they just don't want to talk. Like they're just not there that day. And it doesn't matter how you show up. It doesn't matter how much prep you've done. It's just a nothing burger. And then you have guests who just show up and they're they're like fully present. They want to be there and they want to be in conversation with you. And that is when the magic happens to me, right? Like when someone is willing to to go with you, to follow your lead, and um, and to share the parts of themselves that are messy and interesting. Because like I think especially now, people feel like everything is so packaged, right? Like it's like if I want that, I'll just go on Instagram. I'll just like consume everyone's packaged life there. So to me, like that is what makes a really fantastic ass is a person who who shows up. Right. Totally. I mean, I'm asking that sort of from like a a personal shit standpoint as someone who interviews people and also goes on, on things as a guest. Don't you feel like being an interviewer, like that they each inform the other. And I think everyone should have the experience of doing both because then you realize you're like, oh, you're giving me nothing here. 
Like right. your job is to sort of come and bring a little something. <laughs> right. Sometimes you just don't jive like with the guest or the interviewer, depending on which position you're in. And that that's tough because you are maybe meeting them for the first time, especially now on Zoom. So it, it can definitely, it's a talent to be able to pull information and interesting information out of people and to be an active listener and yeah. An active listener. So I think active listener is the number one thing that like very often, like you'll sit down for an interview and someone's like, I'm just going to tick through these questions. You're like, oh, you're not, you're not even, you're not even. Not going to react. <laughs> and then the, and then the, um, the other thing is preparation is like when you can tell that someone has prepared and has given great care and thought to an interview as an interviewer, it just changes the experience for you on the other side. Because then at least I always feel like I want to honor the fact that the interviewer has put in that work and that care. Totally. And I think also like, although I mean, right here, I have a list of questions and information and I always do for any interview, but I typically don't interview according to the script. I sometimes will have to, depending on like what I'm getting from a guest, but I typically use all that to just like know about the person and then like see where it goes. And then, yeah, we'll see where it takes us. Maybe we'll get the questions. Maybe we won't, you know, some of them will be, some of them are necessary. And like, I will hundred percent ask them and yeah, it's definitely like, it's a skill that you can improve on. Hey, American Fever Dream listeners, I'm here to tell you that there is no reason to panic the next time you're searching for the perfect gift. Because now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy is here to take the stress out of gifting so you can find the perfect item for anyone for any occasion. And it's easy. You just tap or click Gift Mode in your Etsy app or Etsy.com and then answer a few questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you a curated gift idea list based on hundreds of personas. Now it is simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a Mother's Day gift for the quilter or a birthday present for the vintage hunter, there is something for everyone on Etsy. Some of my favorite things to do are go to Etsy gift mode and then search absurd things like what kind of gifts do you have with Walter Cronkite on them? What kind of gifts do you have for dachshund owners? There's jewelry, ceramic, toys, board games, all kinds of fun stuff. A gifting moment is always right around the corner, whether it's a birthday, an anniversary, a holiday, or even just a day to say thank you. Gift mode on Etsy has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try gift mode on Etsy now. Okay. So now my deeper question is, so you started off by saying you thought that you were going to work in public policy as a public servant. And then you saw that like the media was actually sort of the filter that determined how things go. How did, how does that impact what you now decide to cover or not cover as a media person? Uh, brilliant question. Thank you. Um, <laughs> You're giving there, me a lot there of are guests, always- so... Thank you. Um, there are always A1 stories, right? There's a story everybody's covering. And so one of the responsibilities I feel I have, especially someone who's on weekends where you're not dealing with quite the same drumbeat of news, who has four hours spread over two days, is to pull some of those stories that haven't gotten the attention that they deserve and to stick with stories even after they're no longer making other newscasts. So I think of something like um, the killing of Vanessa Guillen. Um, You know, that was a story that sort of made first reference 
and then fell out of headlines and we kept returning to it as the story emerged because I felt we had a responsibility to that story to continue to come back to it. Um, There are a lot of stories I would say about immigration that we cover that don't get the, the time I would like to see them get that aren't treated like, you know, everyday issues, the way that healthcare, education, or jobs might be treated as an everyday issue that impacts communities. And so to me, that is the responsibility is to one, pull stories that that may not be getting the attention they deserve. And two, to be really critical about who it is that we're bringing in to be an expert or to give their perspective on that stories. There, I think, is very often a tendency to default to the same few names and same few faces. And I am very personally committed and my team is very personally committed to making sure that we expand who that universe is, right? Like who is considered an expert, whose perspective is considered valuable. If, If you worked on a campaign in this last cycle, you might be young, it might have been your first or second job, but you're more familiar with the way campaigns are being run today than someone who ran their last campaign in the 90s. That person's opinion is valuable too, but in the traditional hierarchy, that person gets to go before the new person. And so it is really important to me to bring those new voices in. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense. Like I would say if you ask, like even just in our own in, at Betches, like the people who are most familiar with how to use social media are the people who run the accounts every day. Like they know the tricks, they know like what will get engagement. They're looking at that every day. So it's really, it's so true. So like, how do you find new stories and new people? Like, where do you look? Not to make things too circular, but social media is huge for me. I think having a very diverse and curated list of people who I follow on all platforms has been one of the most helpful and useful things. Also, you know, it's so funny. I don't know if you have this. Like, I think of myself as being early career, and I sometimes have to remind myself that I'm mid career. And one of the values of being mid career is I know a, a lot of people, and I have in part by by nature of being an older millennial, just a very diverse friend and colleague group. And so I'll, I'll give you a specific example, which is when the um, hate crimes against a, the AAPI community um, started bubbling up and no one was covering it. My friend, Jose Antonio Vargas, um, who's a journalist who we co-founded Define American together, which is an organize, organization aimed at changing the narrative around immigrants and immigration in this country. He texted me and he was like, I'm on Clubhouse right now and there are like 40,000 people in a room and we're all talking about this and all these big names from the community here, you have to cover it this weekend. And there was like, to me, that's a layup. Like, of course, a person I love and trust who is in the community is telling me this is a thing that's happening in my community and that not enough people are talking about. And that weekend we did the story and we were we were first to it just because I I listened to the people who who knew it best. And I think it is about having that openness and that willingness and and really making sure that the the you have diversity in all of the content that you're consuming, right? Your social media content, but also just like where it is that you're getting your news from. So it sounds like your job is essentially 
and I mean, I suffer or you could say benefit from this too, is that like your job is your life. And there's really no, like, while you may have a work acquaintance or whatever, like they, it's all just really sort of one thing, which is kind of like you finding what you care about and then covering them and, you know, making those connections. So obviously, you know, your, so your dad was born to Cuban immigrants and that obviously like affected your values and what you choose to cover. Um, So what, during basically like the Biden administration, obviously like immigration has not been, I don't think they've been doing, you know, had an amazing job with their policy, um, especially given some of what we've seen in the past weeks, what would you say is like the Biden administration's grade on immigration if you had to give them one? I have learned never to give a grade, Sammy, but I will still give you an answer to your question. Um, I think we need to be clear about the fact that they came in and faced enormous challenges and that there were structural pieces of our immigration system that were broken pre-Trump right? There was an immigration system that legislatively we've not dealt with in this country for far too long. Then Trump comes in. He, Stephen Miller, just take a sledgehammer to asylum laws in this country, absolutely, you know, break down that system. And then, you know, Biden comes in and part of their work is undoing a lot of what was done before pivoting to the proactive work they needed to do. I think the biggest stress point has been Title 42, which is one of those wonky names. So for anyone who doesn't know, it is um, sort of this obscure provision written into law that is supposed to be used during times of health crisis. What we have seen both during the Trump administration and the Biden administration is the government used Title 42 as a grounds to expel migrants from this country. That to me is sort of one of the biggest things that could be dealt with right now. There's so much about immigration in this country, about the system of immigration that is broken, that requires a legislative solution. We're watching right now on Capitol Hill how slow moving legislative um, answers can be. There are immigration pieces there. I think there are are things that may be accomplished before we get to January. But to me, the, the one thing that the Biden administration could do right now today is to repeal Title 42. Do you think that's on the table? I cannot tell. I think it I think there is a role that the courts are going to play in deciding whether or not uh, the administration is allowed to continue to use Title 42. I think it could end up being the courts that make that decision. Um but yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm doing this special um, where I interviewed all of the um, senior Hispanic Latino members of, of the Biden administration, and I kept coming back to this question of Title 42. And one of the things that's interesting about doing a project over the course of several weeks is this story has evolved even in the course of those weeks. So I think it is, I think it is a moving target, and I think we'll see. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a huge constant issue that's always sort of like overshadowing everything that's going on. And here's the way I look at it, Sammy, which is, uh, do you have friends who are dreamers? Like, do you have any friends who were, who came to the country? I don't. Okay. I I, I grew up, you have, you know, you know, I know. Yeah. But not like close. Yeah. 
like my dreamer friends are now like in their 30s. Some of them are are pressing 40. And to me, their lives are sort of the monuments to the fact that this country has not figured out what to do about immigration in the course of our lifetime. Like they're here. That many of them have jobs of service. They are teachers or they are uh, EMTs or they're nurses or they're doctors. And this country relies on their service but doesn't want to get real about giving them a way to become citizens. And I think this is like the single thing that gets lost in our conversation about immigration in this country is people say, well, just do it the right way. In most cases, there is not a right way to do it or there is not a right and timely way to do it. Um, and that is that is the piece that undeniably needs fixing. Also, it's like done. Like you're, what are you gonna do? Like kick out these parents of ch- of children? Like it's just dumb to me. Like I'm. Really, it's- yeah, no. There's 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 not even a mechanism by which you could um, like find 12 million people and expel them from the country. It's silly, which is why part of what you saw under the Trump administration were all of these acts of aggression that would make it such that people would just either want to leave or want to not try to come. Right. Which they, you could argue they succeeded in. But um, so, I mean, obviously like the Latino or Latinx, however you've been referring to it as Latino. I use them all. Yeah. I mean, the community is not a monolith, but I, I do feel like electorally and politically, both parties sort of look at the community as being up for grabs electorally. What do you think like, what do you think will ultimately determine, I guess, sort of like where the community goes or not even, you know, as a whole, but just do you think that the Biden administration's immigration policies are alienating the community? This is such a big question. Um, So just to break it down a little bit for someone who might not be as familiar as you are when you say it's not a monolith, Part of what you're saying is there are multiple countries of origin. I am Cuban and I consider myself Latina. There are, you know, many Mexicans who consider themselves Latina. And I could sit here just naming countries and it would take up, um, you know, the length of the podcast. Um, There's also which generation you're a member of, right? Are you the first person in your family to be born here? Are Are you someone whose family has been here since before the United States was the United States? There are those of us who are English dominant, those of us who are Spanish dominant, where we get our media. There are so many different elements of this identity. Um, it's also a racially diverse group, right? I, I am white and Latina. There are also black Latinas, Asian Latinas. Um, and then I think what you were driving at is that all also shapes political identity. And so I, I think something we saw in this last election was that there was some um, some movement, especially among Latinos, uh, to to Republicans. I think there's a question of if that was a move to Republicans or if that was a move to Donald Trump. And when you look at all the polling, very rarely does immigration poll as a top tier issue for for any for Latinos, but it is a motivating issue and it is often treated as a litmus test, like a yes or no. Tell tell me how you feel about us, Um, that it's like a thing that can be graded on a binary rather than a sliding scale. And I think um, 
I think that is where it will come into play, especially because there's an opportunity for Congress to get something done on immigration. Um, and so the question will become like, are, are they willing to do something, to move something so that undocumented immigrants in what we call the interior of the country, people who are already here, um, have a path forward? Right. It seems like such a no-brainer for them, both from like a moral and a political standpoint. But I don't know. There's obviously a lot of factors there. Today's episode of American Fever Dream is brought to you by Newly. Have you ever felt that fast fashion ick, but can't always afford the super high-end stuff? I have a solution for you. It's Newly. Newly has everything you need to bring your closet up to speed for the season without breaking the bank. Free your closet of impulse purchases and skip the buyer's remorse by renting instead. Newly is a subscription rental service, and for just $98 a month, you get your choice of any six styles. They also have inclusive sizing, up to 5X, as well as petite and maternity. You get fast, free shipping and returns and professional cleaning and newly state-of-the-art laundering facility. No laundry for you to worry about. This is the best. You just put it back in your box, send it out, and before you know it, you've got your next one. And you always have the option to buy what you love for sometimes up to 75% off. I bought the Rachel Antonoff pasta puffer from them. I was obsessed with it, like everybody who tries it is, and it was completely sold out everywhere else. So I felt like I really, really had an in there. So thank you, Newly. Newly is an amazing value at $98 a month for any six styles. And right now you can get $20 off your first month of Newly when you sign up with the code FeverDream20. Just go to N-U-U-L-Y.com. That's Newly with two U's and enter the code FeverDream20 and sign up to get $20 off your first month. That's N-U-U-L-Y.com. Newly with two U's with code FeverDream20. Newly subscription clothing rental. Change your clothes. I would love to sort of pivot to talk about your book, The Likeability Trap. I think that, I mean, our audience is primarily women and, you know, women who are grappling with careers, maybe they're also a mother. And yeah, I mean, The Likeability Trap, the term sort of speaks for itself, but could you kind of elaborate on what that means and what you wrote about in the book and really what inspired it? I know that's like four questions, but... I care a lot about being well-liked. I think that comes from being- a I do too. It's just the greatest when people like you. And it hurts when people, it stings when people don't like you. And especially if you want to like, you know, you're on TV, you want to be a successful woman in media and like being liked matters. So- And that, I'm glad you said that because that, I originally imagined writing a book that was like an eat, pray, love for likability or like eat gelato and do yoga and just learn to care less. Mm -hmm. And because I interview people for a living, I started talking to other women about it. And there were lots of women like us who care a lot about being well-liked and feel they pay a price for caring so much because when I go to sleep at night, I think through every social interaction I've had that day. Um, You also pay a price for not caring. So that is correct. And that is what I did not fully appreciate or realize, especially in a professional context, which is that women who don't give a damn, they aren't always just out there living their best lives. They often feel that they pay a price, especially at work where it's non-negotiable for, for being themselves. And, 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 you know, your audience knows this, like 
what we expect of women is warmth, is communality, is that like we we'll always want what's best for the team. And what we expect of leaders is someone who is assertive and knows how to lobby for themselves. And so those two things are always in conflict. And so women are generally given one set of feedback. Either you're told that you're really nice and everybody loves you, but you just don't have what it takes to lead. Or you are told that you get it done, your results are there, but you ruffle a lot of feathers and you need to tone it down. And that's not just like a thing that hurts your feelings in a feedback session. That is a thing that limits women's upward mobility. Totally. Do you think that like you have to ruffle feathers to get things done? I think you have to be clear and direct in order to get things done. And I think society has primed people of all genders to be so unaccustomed to women and women identifying individuals asserting what it is they want and need, even when it is clear and and done with a smile, um, that, that it is very challenging for women to do that. Right. And why does it have to be done with a smile anyway? Like, right. No, totally. That's my like, point. It's like, even if you, f- and I think, I think it is where a lot of the professional advice of, for women of our generation really failed us or fell short, which is so much of it was predicated on this idea of surviving the workplace, right? If like you just ask for a raise in like the smiliest way. way, yeah, then like, then you'll get it. And, um, and one, that's not true. Um, Two, it's not asking the bigger question, which is why should you have to ask this way? Like, why should your results um, and what you bring to the table not be enough to to warrant um, that reward and that promotion? And, and, you know, even like, again, sort of your core audience, everyone has either read Lean In or watched Sheryl Sandberg's TED Talk that inspired Lean In. So they're, you know, you're familiar with the idea that the more successful a woman becomes, the less other people like her. And what I think that misses is that it's not just like a one-time choice about whether or not you want to be successful or well-liked. Because to me, then that would be an easy choice, like choose to be successful because you can't guarantee being well-liked and the only way you will be successful is by actively pursuing your ambition. It's more that it's like all these little micro choices along the way. It's having even a transcript that is too good. There's all this research about women in STEM who have like a 4.0 applying for jobs and they're less likely to get jobs than women who have like a 3.75 because there is an expectation that these women who are so high achieving must be no fun and unpleasant to be around. It's the first time you ask for a raise. It's the first time you ask for a job title. It's the first time you ask to be put on a stretch assignment. Every little step along the way in a woman's career where she advocates for herself and for her ideas, she is negotiating this question of, is I won't get what I want unless I ask, but by asking, I know that I run into the possibility that I will be dinged for being less likable. Right. And it's it's interesting because just what you said about how as women get more successful, they get less liked. I think you see that like you see it a lot with um inter- people on the internet because as they get bigger, people start, you know, a, you like know them longer. So you find more things to quote unquote, like disagree with. But I, I find that the bigger someone gets on the internet, 
the more shit people talk about them just because. I have to know, are you kind of talking about yourself a little bit too in that? Like, do you, have you, have you experienced that? I'm not really talking about myself because I didn't ever blow up. Like, I feel like I've just sort of like slowly grown myself over years and I've evolved and like, there's lots of people who have negative things to say about me. I've seen the reviews. Like, it's not like, but then I sort of wonder, I'm like, okay, but there's also lots of people who, who do like me and I'm not going to be everyone's cup of tea. And like anyone who's ever been successful, anyone whose name, you know, has had lots of people hate them. And that's, just, you just kind of have to like be okay with it. Like sometimes I think, sometimes I think when I look at other, other high profile people, I'm like, there's this natural reaction for me to be like, I don't like that. Or like, I love, I love that. And sometimes I just feel like maybe if I just stopped evaluating so hard, like, like whether I like, or I dislike someone, like who cares? They're just there. Totally. I mean, one Likeability is like a very um, nebulous thing. I couldn't Elusive. like, yeah, I I couldn't give you a definition because the a person I like may be a person you dislike. It's completely subjective. I mean, there are things like a person's level of neuroticism, which you and I have already talked about vis a vis the pup. Hi, it's like it's like he knew we we're gonna talk about it. Um, and 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 how extroverted you are, like those things, sort of you know tend to have corollaries with likability, but that's the thing. It's like people tend to like people like them. That's part of it. It's like, I think, and I'm glad you brought this up. I'm just fascinated with this question of, of public people and how I think in some ways it's about us trying to sort out the world, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, who are my people, right? Like, am I a person who aligns with this person or am I not? And does that then provide some what I would say is a false sense of order in the world. Totally. If you can like assign, like it just makes it easier to go through your day assigning like good, bad, good. Like, and then you get to feel like this, like moral judge sort of like, did you read the bad art friend discourse? No. Oh my gosh. So the past like few days, I, I'm not going to explain. The whole I haven't thing. read that. I haven't read the kidney thing. Oh, like, that, that, that is the kidney the, thing. It is, like, see, I didn't even know. is the kidney thing. So I think that was so intriguing to people because there was like a lot of nuance in the conversation and you got to like parse out whether who you liked and who you didn't like and who was right and who was wrong. And I think it just feels incredibly satisfying sometimes to, to, to judge whether you like or dislike someone. And then women, a lot of whom, and tell me if you relate, like if you're a perfectionist or like a recovering perfectionist, that can really get to you because perfectionism is inherently like means that you're trying to seek everybody liking you, but that is physically not possible, especially once more people know you. Right. And so one of the things I think a lot about is that in this world where there are so many options, you also need to be so specific about as a sort of public entity, you must think about it in the context of a brand, not necessarily a personal brand, but the actual brand that you run, which is like, what is the value to me here? What is this giving me that no one else and nowhere else is going to give me? And that requires being really specific. And in being really specific, you're going to have some people who love it and you're going to have some people who hate it, right? Like, like, what does everybody like? It's like, have you ever read one of those bios that it's like, what do you like? I like walks on the beach and golden retrievers and chocolate. It's like, everybody likes those things. Those are everybody actually those like 
medium on my list when it comes to dog breeds, um, what type places to walk and flavors. So yeah. So, you know, yeah. It's, so there we go. Yeah. It's just, it, but it tells me everything I need to know about a person. If I'm like, those are your favorite things. Right. Right. Favorite. Exactly. Did you, so just going back to the perfectionism thing, did you struggle with that as like part of the quest to be well liked? I am more in the get it done camp mm-hmm. than in the, it has to be done perfectly camp. But I am definitely a very high achiever. And so I do want all things to um, reach some level of excellence. And so that is more where I deal with it. And like one of the things that that I sort of caught myself doing or where these two things come into conflict for me is I'll give you what is like a, a, a example of this, which is like once I had a project and the person in PR came to me and they were like, okay, we're going to write up a press release, anything you want in. I'm like, no, I'm sure whatever you do is going to be great because I want it to be easy and breezy and like, it'll be fine. And then they brought it back and I was like, well, this is all wrong. And, and then ended up making life difficult both for me and for her, right? That if I would have just upfront been like, here is exactly what I want and expect to be in there, she would have been like, great, thank you so much for that clarity in that direction. She would have walked away, came back with it, and then maybe we would have done some minor edits together. Instead, I pretended I was breezy and didn't care. Then when it came back, I ended up having the conversation. I wasted us both time. I wasted us both time and I ended up being what I would say is is more difficult. Right. It's so funny. I also like, I would say I went through about like, maybe it was like a three-year fra- phase where I was just like really trying to be breezy and like, you know, it's everyone's responsibility to just like take care of their things and like, there will be constantly, you know, like, but it's like, no, actually you have to, you're being unsupportive by being too breezy. And I think sometimes it's a personality type where you are setting people up to fail so that they can meet your expectation that they were going to fail or disappoint you. That it is like setting booby traps for people to be like, go ahead, you write that. Let me see what you come back with. Like that's not kind. That's not generous. That's not helpful. That's, you know, I think sometimes the idea of giving clear direction gets tied up with this idea of micromanaging and they're very different things. And I think there is a way to be like a good, clear colleague and to not be right over a person's shoulder. Right. I do think that I got confused for a time between like demanding and, um, you know, you just think if you ask for anything, you're demanding or like you're difficult or you're, I don't know, somehow being like over, you know, overstepping. And it's like, actually, you're not asking, you know, people to do you a favor at work. It's not a favor. It's like, right. it's I work. think it's also the funky thing though, that comes with, um, with having ownership over the thing you do, mm-hmm. right. Knowing that this, that Betches is yours. Like that is like a different, like it's like running a small business or a um, like having your own medical practice, like whatever it is, it's just like it, you know that, that you are coming at it from a different vantage point than, than everyone else. No matter how much work you've done to build team and to build unity and to build buy-in, it will, it will almost always be different. Right. It's also like your vision and like you're trying to like get people to execute your vision. And it's, it's challenging because like, 
are you explaining it correctly? Like, how do you get everyone on the same page? Like what, what is good? And I think that sometimes I feel like high achieving women have this sort of distorted perception of what good is and good enough will never be good enough. Do you ever have anyone um, reflect your career back at you? I always find that to be a deeply uncomfortable, like, thank you for not making me sit through your introduction of me because there's nothing more painful to me than that. Where it's like, from the early age of such and such, and you're like, please don't, because I don't feel like I'm there. I feel like I am like like not even halfway up this mountain and I'm like looking around this mountain wondering if I've even decided to climb the right mountain and if maybe it would just be better if I climbed back down and found another smaller mountain that I could summit and (laughs) it's like it is it is always to me deeply uncomfortable to have someone talk about my quote-unquote success when I don't feel that myself I know oh I totally know that feeling and sometimes I'm just like oh maybe I could um interior decorate people's homes for fun or I could like start like a food truck <laughs> like you know like I totally think that all the time but um no I yeah the I know what you mean because it's like you work so hard to get those things and then it never feels like you did enough did you watch hacks are you watching Hacks? I loved hacks yeah so there's that great gene smart mini monologue where she's talks about she's like you fight and it's a fight and you never stop fighting and I thought it captured that so well and I think that that is that's true like it doesn't it doesn't matter what you do like you and I happen to be public people but for someone who's listening who's not a a, a public person just like I think that same sense of aspiration and trying to trying to to do more and be more and provide more is, is always there, right? Like I think a lot of us, it's not even that we're struggling with how do I be happy, but how do I learn to be content? How do I say this, this is, this is good. This is enough. Yeah. I mean, I think there's something very specific, you know, you're from New Jersey, elder millennial from New Jersey. Like I am from Long Island, you know, also an elder, I guess you could call me an elder millennial now. Maybe I'm like more middle millennial, but I think- Okay, no need to brag. (laughs) We got it. You're younger than me. No, I'm not sure like what I'd be considered, but- How old are um, you? I'll tell you. 32. Oh, you're like, you're definitely, you're like solid middle. Right. I, I, yeah, I feel like I'm like squarely millennial. Mm -hmm. So, but I do think that like for- our age cohort, there was a lot of, especially from, especially from like this tri-state area, there was so much emphasis on like success, go to college. I also thought I was going to be a lawyer and like, you know, and it was just like, oh, that's obviously the most successful thing I could be. That is realistic. Well, and I think that, I think, I think there are two things I want to say about that. One is I want to acknowledge like my own privilege in this conversation that I have parents who went to college. And so, you know, their expectation, um, you know, having gone to college locally was that I would get to go away to college and that would be, you know, the, the next big thing. Um, and I remember the day I got into Harvard and like my parents both sobbed cause it meant so much to them. Um, yeah. So like, I do want to say that they're like, I think 
it is both the pressure and the privilege of coming from families where these things were options to, to oh, state the office. No, oh, for sure. No, it's definitely when I even say like this, like tri-state area, like the culture is one of privilege. Like my my dad was also an immigrant and he was all he cared about was that I got into I mean, he he was an immigrant from Canada because of the Holocaust, not like the same. I mean, whatever. It was hard to, but, but not the same thing. Um, he was obsessed with me going to like an Ivy League school. Like when I was three years old, he was like telling me like I had to go to college and like I had to. He also wanted me to go away to college. That was like a big piece of like th- the achievement like a liberal arts college in New England was like his vision for me. And it was this very, like, it really implanted in me like this one path, like, you know, and, and, and at at any cost, like, yeah. Well, especially because when you come as we both do from people who are diasporic, who are living their life in a state of exile, um, which I think um, there's, you know, there are a lot of immigrants who also feel that, that, the, this idea of going home that there there is not a there's home no home right like where to. he um, home is the is brooklyn like flushing <laughs> like, yeah yeah that it's like and then and then that all of that sacrifice and that risk has to be made worthwhile um and but i, I also think though that understanding now that there are some years between us but that we did come up in the go girl era and i right we're we're Part of what parenting was about was showing girls that they could do anything. And if you've never read any Rachel Simmons, she's one of my favorite experts in the girl space. But she often says that in the interest of teaching girls that we could be anything, they got the message that they had to be everything. And the the perfect student, the perfect friend, the perfect daughter, and and that pressure I think we have like really examined in the world of girlhood and we have less examined the way in which that pressure has continued with us through adulthood that we've never given up that idea that we're supposed to be able to to do and be everything well that's what lean in was a continuation of lean in was like the adult version of that like it was like oh you could still do it like you would still do everything you'd still have everything like So it's not like it was even like pushed away as like a fantasy, like a fairy tale. Like it was actually like reinforced at a very vulnerable time. Like the book came out like four years after the financial crisis, when if you were a recent college graduate, like maybe you could not find a job. So yeah, it's definitely, it's, it's been a lot to recover from or to even start to recover from. But speaking of making it and, you know, achieving a lot, you have a very exciting special coming out this Sunday on MSNBC. Can you tell us about American Voices Inside the White House, which is the name of your special? I just... No, you do. You, beautiful announcer voice. Um, so ordinarily, I'm on Saturdays and Sundays, 6 to 8 p.m., Eastern time, if you are ever looking for someone to hang out with on a Saturday or Sunday night. And this Sunday at 7 p.m. Eastern, I got to sit down with um, four members of the Biden White House, uh, Biden cabinet, 
um, Secretary Cardona, who's the Secretary of Education, Secretary Becerra, who's the Secretary of Health and Human Services, uh, Secretary Mayorkas, who's the Secretary of the Department of Homeland Security, and Isabel Guzman, who runs the Small Business Administration, also um, some other senior leaders in the White House. And it is part biographical, looking at their stories and how their lived experiences inform the way that they approach the work. And then also asking about some of the pressing issues that impact the community and really impact us all, right? Community college, um, student debt, immigration, uh, COVID response, vaccination rates. Um, you know, there's, this is such a, a critical moment and it was such a privilege to be able to sit down and, and have these conversations um, about how they're thinking about the work that's ahead of them. That's really amazing. I know I'm free Sunday at seven, so I'll be tuning in. <laughs> Thank you so much, Alicia. Thank this you. was an amazing conversation. And where can the audience follow you? Um, I like Instagram best if it survives <laughs> at Alicia Menendez XO. Um, you can also find me on Twitter at Alicia Menendez. Thank you so much, Alicia. This was awesome. Thank you. You're awesome. Afternoon Tea is produced by Sean Kilby and Jorge Morales-Pico. Our editor is Stacey Wong. Social media by Amanda Duberman. Guest booking by Nicole Pellegrino. Be sure to follow at Betches underscore SUP on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. And send us your emails to SUPPod at Betches.com. 